You're listening to the Detroit is Different podcast network. That's how we out here now. That's how we out here now. What? That's how we out here now. That's how we out here now. Hello, welcome to the Riverwise Podcast. We're coming to you with another dispatch from quarantine. The work does not, doesn't stop and neither do we. I'm your host, Amas Muhammad, and with me as always is the hardworking and esteemed managing editor of Riverwise Magazine, my friend and co-host, Eric Campbell. Welcome everybody. At the magazine and on this podcast, we recognize the massive impact COVID-19 is having on our nation, on our communities, and within our own homes. While we continue to navigate this crisis, doing our best to bring you the stories from the incredible people on the front lines, we also want to make space for and highlight the voices and important conversations that are happening within the shadow of the pandemic. Today, we're going to focus on one such story, an urgent and important conversation that was on the verge of breaking into the national conversation right before all news cycles became overwhelmed by this global crisis. It is no less important now than it was, and in light of our current circumstances, it is possibly more so than ever. We're going to talk today about the issue of Detroit property tax assessment and the devastating overassessing of Detroit homeowners to the estimated amount of $600 million. To help us better understand and dive into this topic, joining us is Yolanda Jackson, an urban planner and policy profession, public policy professional and a native Detroiter representing the Coalition for Det Property Tax Justice. Welcome to the Revised Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, guys for having me here to talk about the coalition's work and this, you know, devastating issue um, that has impacted Detroiters so devastatingly. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we're very thankful to have you with us. We want to make sure that we stay on top of this issue, even through, you know, what's become really layers of crisis that Detroiters are dealing with right now. Yeah. This was the big, one of the big stories that was happening, one of the big uh, impact stories for Detroiters, especially uh, Detroiters struggling with housing uh, issues in the city when the COVID-19 crisis broke. So I also want to thank you for being with us, Yolanda, and um, having this conversation. So we've, I'm going to start off with a couple of questions, or with a question, I think, to get mm -hmm. us started, Amas, if that's okay. You know, we've looked at, we've, we've looked at a couple of reports that we've been kind of focusing on um, as a way of having this conversation. I think, first of all, I, I want to kind of bring us up to where we are with the with the property tax home uh, uh, assessment situation as it is now. I know there have been a couple of things that happened before um, that have happened even up to the moment that the COVID crisis started, including, mm -hmm. I want to cite uh, specifically this ACLU lawsuit, um, which goes back a little bit, but I, I wasn't aware that that had happened between the ACLU and the city. But before mm -hmm. we get to that, let's, let's share about a little bit more about your work with uh, the Coalition for Property Tax Justice and how that, how that, how this issue ties in with your work. Yeah, sure. Um, so the coalition, um, formerly the Coalition in Unconstitutional Tax Foreclosures, um, was formed in around 2017 by Professor Bernadette Atwahine, who is a law professor um, out of Chicago, um, who had started doing this research, um, just looking at what was really happening in Detroit, because we were seeing that there were property tax foreclosures happening at a rate that we hadn't seen since the Great Depression. 
you know, she did the research, she formed the coalition, and um, she had done some of this work before in South Africa, um, helping those who lost their land before the apartheid get their land back. Um, so she came, she, you know, talked to all of the organizations on the ground, formed this coalition, um, and immediately got to work. Um, the coalition, we have, you know, three goals. The first goal is to stop um, all unconstitutional tax foreclosures. Um, so based on her research, between 2009 and 2015, the city of Detroit assessed between 55 to 85 percent of our homes in violation of the Michigan state constitution, which states that no property can be assessed at more than 50 percent of its market value. Um, and what we found was that the lower value homes were being assessed at a um, limit significantly, significantly higher than that 50 percent, um, somewhere around like 90 percent of its value. Um, whereas those higher value homes are actually being assessed below the limit of around 40% of their market value. Um, so we really just want to, you know, stop all the unconstitutional property tax assessments, um, compensate those Detroit residents who are already overassessed and lost their homes to these um, unconstitutional tax foreclosures, and ensure that the homes belonging to the delinquent taxpayers who qualify for the property tax exemption or who are illegally ex who were illegally assessed don't lose their homes um, at the tax auction. Mm -hmm. So the work that Professor Atwahani was doing uh, just to establish more of a time work as far as uh, establish a framework as far as time, mm -hmm. her work goes back to really 2009 is when they started working on the report or started working on this data. I believe it was after 2009. I don't have the date um, actually, but. The data goes back to 2009, and we couldn't get data um, before then because the city just, you know, technology and all of those different things. So the only data we had available dates back to 2009. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just wanted to also, in the beginning here, kind of establish the impact that this crisis has had on folks. Um, I don't know if numbers are the best way to really establish that impact. It's one, they're mm -hmm. one way, um, but maybe you could uh, go into some of the numbers as far as people affected throughout the main years that this crisis was taking place, which we established is between, we're talking, we're talking just after, well, the actual, the bulk of the foreclosures or the bulk of the assessment occurred just before the, um, or just after the actual, uh, the takeover, the, um, the emergency manager takeover. Emergency and management. The, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Would you be willing to give us a basic timeline and then we can maybe work through the numbers as they fall into that? Because I feel like this is one of those things that people may be familiar with the emergency manager takeover and some of the fallout from that. But is there, you give us like a brief summary of the timeline to maybe when this started or when it became apparent to where we are today and those affected within that time frame? Mm -hmm. Sure. So since we start, so if we started 2009, so I don't know if you guys know anything about the foreclosure process. But it takes about three years for someone to have, like you have to have delinquent taxes for three years before you start, before your home is, um, you know, eligible for a property tax foreclosure. Mm -hmm. um, so if you look at between 2011 and 2015, based on the data that we had available, um, we saw that one in four of Detroit homes went through property tax foreclosure. So within those four years, we say about 100,000 people have lost their homes to um, foreclosures. Um, and then between around 2000, so, and then research also looks at between 2009 and 2013, um, about 10,000 of those homes would not have gone through foreclosure if not solely for the unconstitutional property tax assessments. 
I wanted to ask about, I, I just wanted to ask about, you mentioned the unconstitutionality, um, which is something that I don't, you know, is, is we're aware of, and we see that term, you mm -hmm. know, attached to all the, uh, we see it attached to a lot of the data and a lot of the information around the, um, around the uh, reports of foreclosures. Can you talk about the, can you talk specifically about the unconstitutionality of what the city, what the city did and what, it, you know, what, what it says in the constitution? Yeah, so the Constitution says that a city can't assess a property at more than 50% of its market value, mm -hmm. right? So what the city of Detroit did, so if you look at the like the homes that were valued at like $18,000 or less, um, they would be taxed at about 90% of their market value, almost twice the limit, uh, which the Michigan State Constitution mm -hmm. allows. Um, but then when you look at those homes that are, you know, valued at $200,000, they'd be assessed below the um, legal limit, um, around 40%. So, you know, the most vulnerable, low income, you know, populations have really bared the brunt of this crisis and continue to be overassessed. I think that um, Mayor Duggan, during one of his press conferences, stated that, you know, this didn't happen under his administration. And I think in 2017, the city did a, a whole um, reassessment of their properties and claimed that they, you know, got it correct. Um, but our friends at the University of Chicago uh, went back and looked at those numbers, and we see that still in 2019, the city's still overassessing those properties, specifically those lower value properties. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that that I mean, out of out of all. I've got a long list of things that are striking about this report. One of them is that, you know, one of them that speaks to or makes it seem like there's some sort of intentionality behind this. And I'm not trying to lead you anywhere. But we have to, <laughs> you know, we have to address the fact that lower income or, or homes that were in that lower income range or lower assessment range were assessed differently than, you know, homes in, in, um, in higher income ranges or higher, uh, um, higher prop homes with higher property values. Mm -hmm. How did the city come to you know, despite you know having trouble with the process all around? How did it come to the point where, you know, folks that had um, you know homes that weren't worth as much? How did they come to be assessed differently than the homes that you know the richer homes? Well, so you know, it's really been hard for you know the economists and the research professionals to really understand how the city assesses properties because I think. You know, Detroit assesses properties differently than other mm -hmm. cities. And I just think that, you know, we don't have the technology, we don't have the staffing and the capacity um, to actually get it right and um, assess properties correctly. And I think that goes to show like what the city's priorities yeah. are. Um, it's not really, you know, to, you know, protect Detroiters and get it right. You know, right now we're just focusing on building up downtown. Um, and not really focusing on stabilizing the right. neighborhoods. And I feel me personally, um, you know, as an urban planner, as a public policy professional, you know, the only way that downtown Detroit is going to be strong is if our neighborhoods are strong. And, you know, we shouldn't be able, we shouldn't just be depending on all of the economic activity going on downtown because most cities depend on uh, property tax income to stabilize their cities or to get revenue. And if we're not, investing in, you know, jobs, we're not investing in education, we're not, you know, ensuring that people have water in their homes, we're not ensuring that people have all of the resources that they need to be, you know, successful and to improve their quality of life, we're going to continue to end up in the same situation. 
um, as we see now that the city's you know projecting a 348 million budget deficit uh, because most of our money comes from income tax and casinos and all of these other things if people aren't working we're still not going to get property tax we're not going to have income tax so you know detroit is very unique and compared to other cities because we just can't seem to get it right i mean i think another issue was that you know in the state of michigan um, if you are below the federal poverty line, you qualify for this thing called the um, poverty tax exemption. Um, so, you know, low income people shouldn't have been, you know, required to pay property taxes in the first place because they were exempt. But, you know, before the ACLU lawsuit that you alluded to earlier, you had to get an application to get an application for the poverty tax exemption. And then you had to go get it notarized. And if you're a single mom, you know, working, you don't really have time to go down to Coma Young and go through security and, you know, go to a notary because you're, you know, that's taken away from time that you could be spending on, you know, working to put food on the table for right. your children. Um, so there's a bunch of barriers that were put in place um, to prevent people from staying mm -hmm. in their home. At the Coalition for Property Tax Justice, now that yeah. information is, is becoming more uh, available and people are becoming to understand this, what are some of the uh, fights that you are working on currently or some of the things that you're doing to, one, uh, make sure this, this hopefully um, discontinues and uh, how are we supporting those in the community who have suffered from this unfair, unconstitutional assessment? Sure. So in February, we actually launched a lawsuit against the city of Detroit, the Wayne County Assessor and the Wayne County Treasurer's Office. Um, because in 2017, what we saw was that all of the tax assessments were mailed late. Um, so they denied folks of their due process um, and the opportunity to appeal their assessments. So we saw people losing their homes to tax foreclosure where they didn't have to in the first place because the city of Detroit, you know, and Wayne County mailed the assessments late. So we, um, you know, launched a lawsuit around that. And our goal really is to you know, get compensation for those who have, you know, lost their homes to legal tax foreclosures. So the coalition has been working with City Council President Pro Tem Mary Sheffield on a compensation ordinance. And this ordinance would include a menu of in-kind options um, for people to choose from on how they can, you know, be made whole again. So we're really trying to focus on this thing called restoration justice, uh, but we want it to be formed by the people who have been impacted. It's not really our role to tell people, you know, what can make up for this. And I don't honestly feel like, you know, anything could really make up for the loss of homes. And you hear some of these folks stories, you know, these are homes that have been, you know, in their, you know, families for generations, their grandparents, you know, worked really hard to build that generational wealth. And it was stolen from them. And it's been a very traumatic experience, you know, for many people. I know when I you know, hear folk stories, sometimes I just, you know, start crying. I can't help myself because it's just so traumatic. Even, even if it didn't impact you just growing up in this city, you know, seeing the deterioration of the city and like, you know, the house that was next door to me seeing that it's just a empty field now um, is very traumatic for me. Um, So we really just want to figure out, you know, is it a job? Is it a new home? You know, is it, you know, money? We want those impacted to, you know, develop that menu of options. We've also, you know, been trying to work on a lot of different things, such as a quiet title program with the Wayne County Land Bank. 
Um, and I think right now they're doing a pilot in Inkster because there have been illegal tax foreclosures in Inkster as well. Um, and the quiet title program will allow people to, you know, get all their delinquent taxes cleared. Um, and then they would qualify for the property tax exemption and then they wouldn't have to pay those property taxes just to try to ensure that folks stay in their home. And in the city, you know, we've experienced some roadblocks in getting that program um, established, but we're still working diligently to get that. Mm. Um, put in place. Yolanda, has there been any, I know there's a current, what we'll call a moratorium on foreclosures during uh, the current health crisis. Has there yeah. been any, uh, or do you anticipate any systemic change along those lines as we come, as we come out of the, the COVID-19 crisis? And, um, you know, the, the mayor has already said that he's going to return to water shutoffs, you know, um, we're, we're resisting that, of course, but mm -hmm. in terms of foreclosures, has there been any progress as far as, you know, a moratorium that might be sustained beyond, you know, the next month or two? Yeah. Um, so in terms of foreclosures, they're more, I think that the moratorium on foreclosures is throughout mm -hmm. 2020. Um, but, you know, we definitely want to see that extended. Um, you know, I also participate um, in a work group that the mayor has assembled um, with, you know, philanthropy and other community development organizations and um, other individuals that work within the city government um, who have come together to really try to figure out, you know, how can we work together to, you know, get people off of the foreclosure list. Um, and I think that right now there's about 32,000 people, 32,000 residential and commercial properties on the foreclosure list um, as of March 2020. And some Researchers project that that list will be about 60,000 next year um, and 120,000 by 2022. And I think that right now, everybody's just like, you know, feeling a little hopeless. Um, I think, you know, we've got that number down. We've decreased it by 40,000. So there still needs to be, you know, a lot of conversation. We need to get everybody to the table to really figure out how can we as, you know, city government, and how can we as philanthropy and as community development, um, as activists, really work together to ensure that this pandemic doesn't further destabilize our cities and our communities? Because we're going to see, you know, even with the, you know, rental and the eviction moratorium, that's going to end soon. Um, and we may see a spike in homelessness. So we really need to all be organizing and coming to the table and figuring out how can we work together as, you know, a city to really, you yeah. know, and even, and even beyond destabilization, you know, a lot of folks are talking in terms of relocation yeah. um, of, of black folks in, yeah. in, in Detroit. Um, and that those kind of that kind of terminology is, you're hearing more and more now as we look at the foreclosure crisis, along with the water crisis, along with the education crisis altogether yeah. amounts to, you know, what some people are calling mass relocation. Yeah. And I mean, and it's, it's been hard to track, you know, what happened to the first 100,000 people mm. um, that lost their homes to, you know, property tax foreclosures. We don't know if they're still in the city, um, if they left. I know I had, you know, friends on my street um, who left around 2008 who've moved mm -hmm. to Atlanta. There's already been like this black exodus of folks leaving the city. Um, and if you look at the numbers, you know, sometimes you hear, you know, Mayor Duggan say, you know, well, the um, poverty rate has decreased. And I think that's just, you know, related to the fact that a lot of people um, have left the city, not necessarily because we've had some type of increase in like, you know, 
economic security for families or, you know, that people are, you know, making more money is just that a lot of people yep. have been forced to leave the city yeah. behind, you know, the mortgage crisis and the property tax crisis. So I'm curious because yeah. I know, and when I was reading up on this situation, I remember reading about one of the chief assessors saying that when he came in, I think it was in 2013, that the city's records were deplorable, that there was mm -hmm. just not it, understaffed and terrible, like just accounting and uh, records and um, keeping track of things. How are we ensuring or is there any insurance that with the lack of qualified assessors or amount of them for the amount of homes in the city itself? Is there work being done to ensure that? Because also the, the, Michigan is unique in that I think property property taxes are assessed annually, where some mm -hmm. states like every three years or in a different schedule, we do it every year. And that is statewide. So there's a ton of properties, obviously, to be assessed every year. What is the work that's being done to one, you know, ensure that they are not understaffed and that the assessments are being done by those who understand and doing it correctly, uh, if that is to maintain this thing, because if there aren't qualified bodies uh, enough or qualified enough to do this, how are we not going to fall into this situation again? Yeah. Um, on the city side, you know, I can't really, you know, speak for what they're doing um, in terms of, you know, trying to increase their capacity and ask staff to get it right. Um, but, you know, the coalition, we had a solution that we proposed to them um, that they haven't seemed to be very open to, um, which is an across the board cut of all the lowest value homes. And doing that is, you know, what is, unconventional. What does that mean? Uh, to an cut across the board cut. Yeah. Yes. So um, basically, we want um, the city of Detroit to take all of the lowest value homes across the city, put them in a pot and just do a cut across the board cut on the assessments. So just, it could be just cutting the assessments in half um, because those are the ones that are already being overassessed. So if we can, you know, assess them, you know, either at what, they're, what they should be assessed at or assess them at um, below that 50% just to provide some relief since these people have already been the ones who've already bared the brunt of the crisis. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they really can't afford to pay. They probably can't afford to pay you know, the assessments at the at the legal limit of 50%. But it just, the state constitution says that you can't assess a property at more than 50%. Um, so they're well in their right to assess them below. And that's just what we propose just to try to, you know, get it right um, in the short term and provide some relief to, the, to those people. How are your feelings on, or if you're familiar with, or it can talk to us about the pro Mayor Duggan's proposed uh, pay to stay plan? Pay as you say. Yeah, pay as you stay, the kind of maybe the band-aid band for what happens next. Does, does that feel like it's enough? Is that, does it seem feasible? What are your thoughts on that? I don't think, I personally don't feel like it's enough. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that Professor Bernadette would agree. I just think that why, my question is, why are we asking people to pay property taxes when they shouldn't have been paying property taxes in the first place? especially those that are, you know, below the federal poverty line, which is about around 40% of the people living in the city of Detroit. It doesn't, it just doesn't make sense because they shouldn't be paying property taxes in the first place because they qualify for a property tax exemption. And it's, it just doesn't make sense. And it's just that they won't clear those delinquent taxes and, you know, 
That's what we would like to see because they shouldn't have been paying them in the first place. They shouldn't have delinquent taxes, especially you have to qualify for the poverty tax exemption in order to qualify for pay as you stay. So Mm -hmm. that's just, you know, my thing. But I believe that, you know, people should have license over their own life. And if it's just another option um, to keep people in their homes, it's their choice to make, you know, enroll and pay as you stay. And I don't want to take any option off the table, but that's why we're fighting for the quiet title program, because it will clear folks' delinquent taxes um, and they will qualify for the PTE so they wouldn't have to pay property taxes that they can't afford to pay in the first place. Hearing the argument like um, that's coming from the city that going too far back to alleviate or to like take away some of those over assessments would be unfair to those uh, property owners who did pay property taxes. You know, like that it would for those who were able to afford it, would that be fair for those who couldn't afford it? Now, I'm just so curious as to like what how does that argument even have legs? Do you have any idea? (laughs) I don't. I mean, if you can afford to pay property taxes, then you should pay your property taxes. You know, if it just doesn't make sense. You know, there would be legislation that created the poverty tax exemption if we didn't realize that there are people who need help, who need relief. So, yeah, I don't understand that argument either. Um, I think we all have a responsibility. I think that uh, we need to be we should take a holistic approach. If there are folks who can't afford to pay their property taxes, you know, that's what they should do. That's their responsibility. Um, And there are people who can't afford to pay their property taxes. And I don't think you know, it's necessarily their fault that they can't pay their property taxes, as we know that there are so many systemic issues, you know, within the city of Detroit um, and, you know, black and brown communities, you know, across the world that keeps people, you know, in poverty, that keeps people, you know, down. And I don't know who created that legislation around the poverty tax exemption, but kudos to them. Um, I think that, you know, people get the poverty tax exemption and the goal is to you know, work with those families to ensure that, you know, in the future that they're able to, you know, come out of poverty and actually meet their responsibilities and pay those property taxes by providing them with decent paying jobs and, you know, increasing minimum wage, all of those things that, you know, people have been on the front lines fighting for um, to lift people out of poverty. Yeah, I really uh, appreciate the work that you're doing. And being on the front lines with people. I mean, yeah, losing a home is is devastating uh, to a family and to the future and uh, many generations to come. That effect just trickles and surges downward. What is the Coalition for Property Ch- uh, Tax Justice doing to, because I know that even the information about the property tax exemption is so hard to come by and so many people don't know that. Are you, um, are you doing any work to bring that information, to make sure that people have that knowledge um, and facilitating being able to uh, find it, apply for it, anything like that? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, So the Coalition Property Tax Justice is a group of community development organizations, um, grassroots organizations, you know, housing providers, tenant organizers. You have some folks in the um, coalition who says they're uh, mud root organizers because the grass just isn't deep enough. So one of the groups that is a part of the coalition is the United Community Housing Coalition. So they have 
a list of, so we have a list of those who are at risk of losing their homes to foreclosure or who may be delinquent. And I know that um, UCHC has done a mass mailing to all of those properties with um, a page that has a bunch of resources on there. And it says that, you know, if you, so if you've gotten that piece of mail, um, your home is probably, you know, on the list of being at risk for foreclosures. Um, so you can call United Community Housing Coalition and they will um, help you um, fill out the property tax exemption form. Um, the city of Detroit, they are um, hopefully rolling out an online system so folks can go online and complete the, um, complete the form online. Um, the Quicken Loans Community Fund, they've done a mass mailing of about 30,000 kits to homes to those folks who um, are at risk of property tax foreclosure. To, with the application in there so folks can fill out the application um, and mail it in. I think that because of the COVID-19 and social distancing, you know, the city of Detroit, the Board of Review, they haven't been in their office. I think that they went in um, last Monday to review all those applications. So if you qualify, you should be getting approved soon. But I would say start with United Community Housing Coalition. And I can try to find the phone number um, for them, um, but they're usually the first line of defense in terms of anything related to housing. Um, and their phone number is 313-963-3310. I will start there. Um, there are also a lot of like organizations in the communities, such if you live in Southwest Detroit, such as bridging communities who do um, property tax exemption for individuals that live in that neighborhood or in that vicinity. Um, so there's just a lot of organizations um, across the city who are working um, directly with tenants and residents to get them qualified. Um, and right now, pay as you say is really the only thing on the table that's keeping people in their homes and helping them pay those delinquent taxes. So if you qualify for the property tax exemption, Wayne County is going to automatically send you an application for a pay as you stay. Um, and you can enroll in that and get on a payment plan to pay off those delinquent taxes until something else comes, you know, to the table. Mm -hmm. A lot of work being done by community really. organizations uh, in the community and, and keeping pressure yeah. on the city, which we, which we have to do. This isn't I, this seems like a situation, you know, in, in Riverwise magazine, we talk a lot about avenues to, towards self-determination, you know, in, in, in the uh, in the face of crisis. Um, this is a situation where currently, though, we need. Do we need we need that cooperation of the city to a certain extent because um you know there, as assets and as resources emerge for folks who are at risk you know the currently injured party the already injured parties uh you know where do we go for reparation for those parties and and what does that look like you you gave us a, a slight indication earlier and we want to dig into that a little bit more um should we do a little uh, a little break Amas and uh, acknowledge some a couple of folks. All right. This is Riverwise Podcast. Thank you for listening so much. We're doing this twice a month. Um, we want to thank some, a couple of folks who have helped us get this started, uh, starting with Kari Frazier, Detroit is Different, um, Heidi Osgood, um, the DJEF. We need to recognize the Detroit Journalism Engagement Fund through the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan has helped us with some resources as well. And we want to thank you, the listeners and the readers who have kept Riverwise afloat by way of financial donations, subscriptions, we always need your submissions. That's what the magazine is about. And um, thank you for helping us provide an, another platform for our voices to be heard. Uh, we're speaking with Yolanda Jackson from the Coalition for Property 
tax justice. Um, thank you again for joining us, Yolanda. We we talked Thanks about reparation, and you know it's a word that comes you know comes to mind for me immediately when we talk about this issue. Um, and I'm sure there's with the work that you do, there's a, there's a balance between you know addressing the reparation issue and addressing folks that are currently at risk as well. Can we have you have you talked about reparation? What that might look like? Can we talk about that a little bit more? You mentioned it earlier, you know, for injured parties, for people who have been foreclosed on and lost their homes, how uh, what does what does reparation look like for them? Yeah, we can't really, you know, mm-hmm. define what reparations looks like. You know, for those people, it's really up to them um, to define it. And you know, as I spoke to earlier, um, we've really been, you know, um, working with City Council President Pro Tem Mary Sheffield's office. Um, so she formed a work group um, that includes individuals from the coalition, as well as individuals um, from city government who've really come together um, and put together a memo, really exploring all of the options um, that folks have um, or all the options that we think, you know, the city could um, establish to compensate folks who've lost their homes to legal tax foreclosures. Some of them may be housing repair grants. It may be a new house through the land bank. I think the land bank has like 90,000 parcels. Um, So it may be, you know, refurbishing those homes and um, giving them to those people free of charge. Um, We have all of these jobs coming to the city. And, you know, a lot of times Detroiters aren't the ones that are getting those jobs. So it may be ensuring that Detroiters who've lost their homes have first dibs on jobs. It could be monetary. It could be money could be a host of different things, but it's really up to, you know, individuals to um, decide what that looks like. And the coalition, uh, we started having focus with impacted individuals, you know, asking them, you know, what are some things that you believe would help make you whole or that, you know, could restore, you know, what has been, what has happened to you and how your wealth, a lot of African-Americans, we've built our wealth through owning homes. And a lot of that wealth has been taken from, you know, Detroit families. You know, we want residents to tell us how we can restore, you know, that wealth and how can we help, you know, make them whole. Um, We've had one focus group so far, um, but with COVID, that kind of in the process. But um, we're trying to think about um, how can we host those focus groups, um, you know, virtually under this new normal. But the work is still progressing forward. And we're still, you know, fighting for a compensation. And through that lawsuit that was passed in February, we're really using that as ground to show that people have been wrong, you know, and city of Detroit's responsibility to make it right. And we're going to explore every avenue that we can um, to ensure that, you know, there are options for people to be restored in whatever way, you know, they deem is making them whole. In pursuing some of those reparative or restorative avenues. Uh, I can just uh, see if this was something that you explored. Um, where would the city or the state, is there any ideas where they would find the funding for that? Because I could see that already being something that they say we can't afford, right? Whether yeah. it's housing grants and monetary reparations or anything like that. That's a lot for the amount of, I mean, and obviously they should be held accountable for this, but on the other side, being prepared to give them an option to find the funding for these things. Um, is that, has that been part of the conversation? Yeah, I think that um, with every option, you know, that we looked at, there's always, you know, something that 
kind of limits the possibility of those things being established for people. Um, however, we give a lot of tax breaks. <laughs> you know, there's a lot, we give a lot of tax breaks to developers and billionaires. And apparently, you know, they say they, they justify that, well, this is creating jobs for Detroiters, but Detroiters aren't getting those jobs. Um, so that's one avenue. We also have this thing called um, the Community Development Block Grant. And every year, Detroit gets around $35 million. Um, and with COVID-19 and the funding that came from the stimulus package, the city of Detroit got about $75 million um, between 2020 and 2021 fiscal year. That's not even, you know, we're still expected to get more money. Um, and if you go back and you look at, like, the things that the city has prioritized with that funding, I believe in the 2016-2017 year, about 41% of CDBG funding went to repaying um, these loans that developers had defaulted on. And that's money that could have actually gone to housing repair grants or helping people stay in their homes. So there's just, there's a lot of avenues or a lot of, you know, a lot of different options. It's just the city's decision to figure out what their priority, what their priorities are. And I think that Detroiters should always be the top priority. I think that on, you know, our end as activists, as people working on the ground, you know, it's our job to inform and educate people um, about all of these different options and these buckets of money. And it's our job to hold our elected officials accountable um, and to push them to, you know, fund things that benefit us and not benefit the people who come here and exploit us and make money off of us at our expense. And, you know, we're not moving up or, you know, we're not benefiting from all of the development that's happening. So it's up to us as well as the city. Yeah. I'm thinking about Jamon Jordan and the presentation he did over the summer. He's one of our local uh, storytellers. And he has, he has an amazing presentation around just housing and how housing has been the, the, the main way in which people, black folks have been controlled, um, housing and property issues throughout, throughout the 20th century and even beyond. So, I mean, this, this, is, this is part of a long legacy of folks being moved around and, you know, we, we, include, the, we include the issues of like redlining and this goes even further. Is this an opportunity? I'm just looking for the opportunity because at the end of his presentation, you know, we're, we're prompted to look for the opportunity that we might take and going back to self-determination again. Um, there are a lot of community organizations that are, that, are, that are taking on this work where the city has faltered. Um, are there opportunities to go even further? I'm thinking about like community land trusts. Um, I don't know if you guys cover issues like that at all. Are answers like those um, becoming more viable now that we see how the system is really working? Yeah, I think that there's been a lot of conversation even within community development um, around community land trusts. I know that the city of Detroit is actually putting, they're actually doing a study um, working with a national group called Grounded Solutions who has worked um, on the establishing community who's, land who's, trusts sorry, um, across the country um, mm -hmm. to see, um, the city of Detroit, to see if, you know, how can community land trusts be established in Detroit? Um, and we're really waiting for that report um, to come out. But I know like folks like Reverend Ross um, already gotten started um, doing community land trust and on the North End. Yeah, I know it's been a lot of conversation. I know Detroit People's Platform, um, they have done a series of workshops on community land trust. 
Um, and I feel like residents will come to me like, you know, what's happening with community land trusts? And a lot of folks um, are excited about it. I think that it's really just um, figuring out the mechanisms that need to be put in place in order for it to be successful in the city. And I can say that I have a lot of knowledge about um, you know, what those mechanisms are, but I look forward to seeing what the feasibility study says and um, working mm-hmm. with, you know. It's interesting that the city is is working on the community land trust. I don't know if that's, is that, a diff- is that different than folks uh, at the neighborhood level, you know, getting together and trying to establish a community land trust for themselves? Does that look different if the city's looking, you know, what, what their what their version of a community land trust is versus what, you know, yeah, I'm not sure because I haven't necessarily been in those conversations. Those are, you know, conversations for those folks that are higher up than me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I know that some of our partners have been at the table trying to, you know, ensure that, you know, community, the community's perspective um, is included in whatever it is that the city's doing on a grand scale. I'm not sure. Only person I know of that's doing community land trust. Um, or that have attempted to do it is um, Reverend Ross. I don't know what other community groups are exploring CLTs, but um, yeah. I think that, you know, I'm taking a lot of this in. I it, it feels like it's just such a huge thing and it feels so like almost par for the course if we look at the last decade of or not just the last decade, I don't know why I'm saying that, but uh, the history of housing issues within the city. So just listening to the work that's out there and what's being done, it's interesting to hear that these things are moving forward. I do feel like sometimes I feel like there's a conflict if we are relying on the city to come up with solutions and just making sure. And it seems that Yolanda and the work that you're doing and the, and the, the organizations that you are part of are doing this, but really holding a bright light to all of those decisions and all of those choices, especially when looking at the money that's coming from the COVID situation. Um, it's, it'll just be so easy for that to disappear before we even know really that it was here. So. Yeah. Yeah. And in my, in my work, um, I've been really trying to organize people and like highlight the fact that all of this money is coming into the city. And like, I think for, you know, I lived in, Chicago before I moved back home and you know a project around a community development black grant dollars in Chicago um so when I came back to Detroit I wanted to bring you know that knowledge and that experience and that analysis um with me to make sure that people know that there are millions of dollars coming into the city every year from the federal government and no one's aware of like where the money's going or how the money's being spent so I've been, you know, really, as you said, shining a bright light on that and making sure that the city knows that, you know, there are folks out here that know about all of this money that you're getting and that we want to be a part of how the money's being spent because it's meant to, you know, benefit low to moderate income families. You know, we're going to make sure that that's exactly what the money's being used And there's for. also a tie-in I want to mention, too, that, you know, we, we've been doing at Riverwise and in the podcast, we've been having some discussions um, around the water shutoffs as well has been one of the one of the issues we've been tackling um, to a great degree lately. And then there's there's a direct tie-in. Um, if you would share with us, Yolanda, what you know what you know about how water shutoffs also play into the foreclosure crisis through the through water bills, delinquent water bills going on, tax arrearages, and how that connects to the foreclosure crisis. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Um, I haven't actually, you know, really explored much of, you know, what's happened yeah. with the water shutoffs and the water. Yeah. I've heard like, you know, I hear a lot of conversations about like the privatization um, of our water system um, and how, you know, it's, it's just crazy to me um, that, you know, that there are people who actually have to fight for, you know, water as a human right, that we're actually, you know, fighting for our water um, when we're sitting right there on this, you know, mm-hmm. big body of water. Um, but I'm talking specifically, yeah. specifically how well, how if if your water bill reaches a certain stage of delinquency, then they can attach the water bill to the to the property tax bill. Is that is that that's the way I understand it? And I don't know if you've heard anything, you know, towards that end. Yeah, I haven't really um, explored. You know, I, I know that that happens, but I really haven't explored like how that impacts um, property tax foreclosures. And if you know that has contributed you know, to the actual amount of those folks that have like already been illegally assessed and then tapping on that water bill, you know, what that impact has been. That's not something that um, we looked at um, or have talked about really. But I think that um, in Detroit and in a lot of black and brown communities, there's always, you know, all of these compounding variables and things on top of things that are just, you know, keeping folks down Mm -hmm. and impoverished. That's another example of how the system just really keeps us down. And, you know, a lot of these things, like, we're just putting band-aids on gunshot wounds, and we really need to just, you know, really be focusing on these systemic changes, Um, even with, like, you know, the the property tax exemption or pay-as-you-stay and all of those things we talked about earlier. I mean, those are really just band-aids on gunshot wounds, and if we're not you know, really changing things at the top. We're just always going to keep coming up with all of these different things. Um, that's really not going to change the situation for the people right. that need help the most. Well, Yolanda, we hope you will come back and join us again because this conversation deserves, you know, at least another hour or another two hours, certainly. Um, and we thank you for keeping us um, abreast of that situation. You know, we're dealing with several levels of crises, that we, as we mentioned earlier, and um, uh, you're helping us keep everything uh you know everything straight and uh and clear um and thank you for your work with the coalition for property tax justice um and you left a number earlier did you want to maybe share the um again a way to get a hold of uh, the coalition yeah um so it's the united community Mm -hmm. housing coalition their phone number is 313-963-3310 um, and I also, before we end, I just want to give a thank you to Christine McDonald from the Detroit News, who put out that article um, with the mm-hmm. $600 million. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that number, um, I saw her, I already thanked her in person, but I want to thank her again, um, because I think that that article really, you know, uplifted the voices of those who were um, impacted and who homes were stolen. Um, and it gave a lot of courage to people to actually come out and share their story because they realized that, you know, this money was stolen from me. And I think that sometimes, you know, there's this narrative that's put out that, you know, if you lose your home, it is your, it's because you were irresponsible or that you decided to spend your money on Jordans or you decided to spend your money um, on a Gucci purse. And I think that, you know, that article really debunked you know, all of those false narratives that are sometimes put out about our community. And I'm just thankful that she, you know, had the courage 
to put that article out and really just, you know, help people see that this crisis and what mm-hmm. happened it's to them was not that, their fault. The voices of the of the impacted have space to uh, have space to be heard, and so we shout. We yeah, definitely shout out to Christine McDonald at the Free Press. We're going to wrap it up again. Thank you so much for for speaking with us, Yolanda Yolanda Jackson, Amas. Thank you so much for that incredible intro. We'll be doing this again very soon, and uh, we hope you can join us in the in the near future, Yolanda. And we'll we'll be covering this issue uh, again on the podcast and in the magazine as well, and um, hopefully through social media. We're going to continue to uh, uplift the voices of the people. Riverwise Podcast, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us, Yolanda. I really appreciate it. So much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, we'll talk soon.